a look back at the schools of magic, and a look forward to Vintage on Magic Online on episode 19 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 19 of So Many Insane Plays. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, folks. Today's show is about the future of vintage on Magic Online. With the recent announcement of power being printed for Online Cube, we explore the ramifications of power on Magic Online and what it portents for the future of the vintage format, both possibilities, pitfalls, and implications. As we go through the show, if you have any comments or questions, please tweet us at Many Insane Plays on Twitter or email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com. Before we dig into the meat of Magic Vintage Online, let's have some announcements. Steve, you had some tournament announcements you wanted to cover to start with. Yes, there are two tournament announcements, vintage tournaments, that you all should go to if you can. Uh, the first is December 30th, I believe. Is that correct? That's right. Columbus, in Columbus, Ohio at Comic Town on Morse Road. It is the Team Serious Vintage Open, December 30th at Comic Town, Columbus, Ohio. I will be there. You will be there. I will be there. I'll be um, in Ohio for the holidays. Excellent. You should come, Kevin. I will not be in Ohio for the holidays, it turns out. <laughs> Where are you heading? I'm heading nowhere. I'm staying home in lovely Michigan for the holidays, part of the reason why I moved here. Hopefully you'll have a white Christmas. I expect to. As long as we don't in Columbus, I'm not going <laughs> to. I know you'd like it that way. <laughs> the second tournament announcement, uh, Eternal is coming back to Udominia. Um, unfortunately, I will not be there. Udominia is a gaming store in Berkeley, California, which is in the Bay. And they're having a vintage tournament, 15 proxies, on Sunday, December 23rd, so two days before Christmas. Um, I strongly encourage folks to go because if I would love to have, I would love to convince you to Minia do regular vintage um, in the Bay. So try and make it. Their last tournament had a really interesting top eight, which I think our listeners would enjoy to review, but we won't cover in this particular show. So additional announcements then. You have some content on Eternal Central recently released or upcoming. You know, yeah, but last time we podcasted, I, I said I, my Schools of Magic first two chapters were going to be published in early October. But instead, I published the uh, Burning Wish, Burning Long Primer. Uh, and if you haven't seen that, check it out. I think we actually just lowered the price by a dollar since it's been up for two months. But that deck is pretty awesome. Kevin, you've enjoyed it, haven't you? Oh, yes, that deck is the real deal. And I think that anyone who likes that archetype or just wants to explore the history of, well, we're going to talk about the lineage of various decks, but that deck is an important I think, marker in the history of combo decks, and it is very potent again. In fact, I would say it's new and improved. And then last, I'll just mention the uh, Schools of Magic article has, first two chapters have been printed, and the third chapter will be published this month. So the way that that's broken up is it's each chapter is a year in the history of magic. And that brings us to one of our next topics, which is the Schools of Magic. We wanted to talk about the history of vintage decks as outlined originally by Robert Hahn in the Schools of Magic series of articles. (laughs) 
Steve, we've mentioned the schools of magic. These were originally drafted by one Robert Hahn back in the late 90s, early part of the game. What are the schools of magic? Well, the schools of magic is this really interesting work that Robert Hahn did first in late 1995 and then continued to update on the Usenet, which was, you will remember, um, uh, a big part of the early internet. Um, and then it was aggregated on the dojo, which is the most famous early um, magic website, like strategy website. But what he did was he created this document, which you can find on the internet and you should definitely read. We're going to go through it today, um, where he argued that um, borrowing, borrowing the martial arts metaphor, that there are coherent philosophies, philosophical approaches to the game that are different, despite the fact that you have each school has the same tools, there are different approaches and focuses. Um, and so he defines schools as a complementary scheme, which win, which win, so they can't suck, <laughs> and, and it feature a, a coherent philides every phase of the game, from deck construction, deck design, deck play, you know, card inclusions. And then he tries to support this idea with various schools. So in his first iteration that I can find, which is version 2.0 from December 1st, 1995, there are four schools. And then the version that I think is the, the biggest, it's the most hits on the web is his early 96 version, which has seven schools. I think seven schools, maybe six, seven or six. In any, in any case, um, you know, so a school he uses the martial arts metaphor. Say that it's like a, you know, like you mean karate is different than um, aikido, is different than you know whatever. So, um, but nonetheless, each of these martial arts or schools are have their own principles. And he says that these schools are more than a strategy. So it's not a school isn't defined as land destruction or hand destruction or control blue blue eye control. It's defined by specific kinds of principles that are coherent in the sense that they operate in tandem and together and they form a coherent philosophy. So it's a really monumental work. I mean, it's probably the first time in the history of magic that someone, you know, obviously tried to organize strategies in, in this way. And he also tried to synthesize all this information at a time when most magic players didn't really know much about what other people were playing beyond what they saw on their, the tournament they last attended or you know, what their friends were playing. Because you couldn't just go to, like, a website and look up deck lists, right? Right. Not before the dojo, that is. Not before the dojo, right. Um, you know, today you can go to StarCityGames.com or whatever and look at the latest deck lists from the latest top eight. Couldn't do that in 1994, 95. Um, and the Internet, most people didn't even have the Internet. Um, so, and so this was a really unique thing. But I think, you know, the most... I think that while the, the schools of magic concept is the most important thing coming out of this, there are two other things that are really worth mentioning. First, he creates a vocabulary for talking about magic that didn't exist. Vocabulary is important not just because it's descriptive, but because it actually is conceptual. It actually structures the way that we think about the game. It uses terms like offense, defense, reactive, um, card advantage. You know, he's bringing a new language or vernacular to the magic community that maybe he might not have developed, but he certainly helped popularize. Secondly, amazing the passion that comes through. I mean, whether we agree analytically you know, at this point um, with his analysis, there's a real sense that he really loves the game. You know, you have to be a networking master to contact all these people in like 1994, 1995. You have to be really driven, right, to, to reach out to people and, and get information from them and you know, to do what he did. In addition to its import and value at the time and, and how relatively groundbreaking it was, you would say that it also 
still has relevance today. Absolutely. That that's that's the main thing that um that I am trying to do with my book project with the schools of magic is to say that, you know, these schools of magic that he identifies in 95, 94, 95, 96 continue to exist today, at least some of them. Now, I think the, the other thing I forgot and I wanted to mention though is that it's not just that he's creating a vocabulary. It's not just that he's trying to synthesize information and make sort of strategic approaches coherent. He's also identifying principles for deck construction, right? Absolutely. I mean, and that is something that, you know, I think we come to the conclusion that one of his schools is not a school, but really just fundamental universal principles for deck construction. That's not necessarily a fair critique to him because in 1995, maybe you couldn't distinguish the two, right? Maybe someone, you know, the, the sorts of things that we accept, take for granted today, maybe weren't universally accepted then or, or appreciated. And because of how young the game was and how young small the carpool was by comparison, as you've said, some things that were perfectly legitimate at the time may have been more fundamental than he appreciated. Things exactly. like card advantage and card quality. It's hard to draw a line between something which is just a fundamental metric of the game, like, say, card advantage, and something that really serves as a tenant for a whole school of construction and play. I think that's exactly right. So should we should we dive into the school? Yeah, I, well, I am excited to talk about the Weissman School up front. <laughs> Well, that's the main school, and it seems to be the, the first one that's in all of the schools, and it seems to be one of the ones that's certainly animating his excitement of the game. And this is one that you can trace, and we're going to say this over and over again, I think you can trace from the early stages of the game, the mid-90s, direct, directly to today, and most famously in vintage, but not only in vintage, but this is something that we still emulate today as we build our control decks and really hold to these values. Right. So the first principle he school, this is the first line of the description, is that, that defense wins games. In other words, that it is a stri- it is a philosophy that emphasizes defensive uh, spells. Counter magic, um, white defense like swords and plowshares, disenchant, dust to dust, and moat, and uh, defensive silver bullets like moat. Um, so I... I um, uh, the second principle I think is very clear is that there's a extreme emphasis on card advantage, right? I'm not sure if he uses that. He talks about it that as a uh, as a principle of the Wiseman School, but it certainly comes through the writing. The other thing I think that comes through in in terms of what he ascribes to the Wiseman School is um, just a few finishers, so that every card you know um, is defensive. So Sarah Angel can both block, but also is eventual win condition. Um, and the flexibility and efficiency of the answers. Want to add anything to that? That's Only that you can really observe the tenets of the school in deck lists very directly. Because mm-hmm. you can, <laughs> it's ironic that you can almost map the structure of Brian Weissman's deck from, say, 95, 96 to a deck today. You can almost lay them side by side and say, this card became this, this became this, because there was such a, I don't know, such a literal updating over time of the ratios of cards staying the same, but the functions being replaced by new and better things. It's really incredible, honestly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you could take a so, Weissman. Yeah. So, you could take so, a yeah, a really yeah. old blue-white control deck and just yeah. replace it with today's cards. Right. So, like an example of that is Sarah Angel became Morphling, became Psychotog, has become Lightsteel Colossus, mm-hmm. and. 
JM Day Tome has went through various iterations, but the modern version of that certainly seems to be Jace. Mm-hmm. Jace is the Jace is like in a sense like the why the perfect Wiseman win condition. It really is. It does all the phases of the the tenets of the school functioning as defense and then transitioning into win condition, and it's incredible. It's the perfect kind of card. And, yeah. yeah, and generating card advantage all along. Um, yes, it really functions as Jame Day Tome and Disrupting Scepter effectively <laughs> at the same time. And plow a little and, bit. Yeah, it overlaps a lot. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. Um, I mean, so I, I don't think there's any doubt that Grixis Control is the modern incarnation of the Weissman School. Exactly. It embodies, I mean, instead of plow, how it uses both. I mean, it's, it's on, you can just trace the cards through it. But, but more than that, it's the same principle. Mm-hmm. Want to move on to the next school? or Let's talk about O'Brien. The O'Brien School? Okay, so the O'Brien School is not in his original ver- version, but it's in his April 96 version. And the O'Brien School refers to Sean O'Brien, who created another Void deck that he popu- also popularized. Um, why don't you, you want to take a stab at this one? Yeah, so this is one of the first decks to really emphasize resource denial as a primary strategy toward victory. And it does that in one of two primary ways that O'Brien lays out, one of which is to put a threat into play and then disrupt the opponent such that they can't deal with that threat, Mm -hmm. or the alternative being to put out a really powerful preventative or resource denial card a la Nether Void and make it so that they basically never participate in the game. You would deny them all resources. So he has Dark Rituals and Mana Vault, so he can play a turn two Nether Void, and then he'll protect it, in a sense, with Strip Mines and Sinkholes. Sinkholes only cost five, and then the Strip Mines, of course, are free. Mm -hmm. So he'll just just continue to keep you locked out of the game permanently once he drops another void. And so this deck, what I, I think is so interesting is, you know, this isn't the first mana denial deck, but what it is is the first deck that embodies that duality, which is that it both plays a tempo strategy, laying a Juzam, a Juggernaut, or a Black Vise, and, and a Mish- or a Mishra's Factory, and then plays another void. Or it'll play the another void and then just keep you locked out. Exactly. And as we've said, you can draw the lineage of this deck straight through a lot of the workshop aggro decks that started to come up right at the turn of the century and then now have evolved through stacks, which was a frequently a heavily creatureless deck, but into modern workshop aggro thanks to Lodestone Golem, which plays both of these roles. And now you've got a deck that can play both sides of the fence. It can throw down a threat and then slow you down such that you can't deal with it. Or it can play lock components after lock components such that you never get to execute your plan and eventually you're locked out. Exactly. And many of the win conditions are the same. So the, this deck uses Juggernaut and Juzams. And Mistress Factories, too. And Mistress Factories. Yep. No, it's, that's not a coincidence. Not at all. No. They're, they just, over all this time, they have barely printed a card that's better than Mistress Factory at doing what it needs to do. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. So I mean, the, the O'Brien School is is well and alive right now. I think. Yes, definitely. Yeah. This and the Weissman School, I think, are the two best examples of how you can map today. Yeah. What do you want to go to next, though? Long or Handelman? Why don't we talk about the ones that are in his in his, his history? Right. So why don't we go to Handelman? We'll go. We'll get back to Long. The key phrase for this Handelman School is a very interesting one that. Han came up with, I believe, offensive overkill theory. Now, the Handelman School has a few tenets, but when you look at it in in deck construction manner, you would almost immediately look at it in terms of threats, large threats that are difficult to deal with and a consistent supply of them. Mm -hmm. 
Now, example of this kind of deck would include things like Juzam Jin and Urnum Jin, potent creatures, mm-hmm. the like of which were common in Arabian Nights. And then backing them up with disruption and protection, the likes of Mana Drain and Him to Turok, Disenchant, Red Elemental Blast. This is what I think many players would immediately label as aggro control. I agree. I agree. So you're trying to put out a potent threat that forces your opponent to address it, but then you tactically counteract them with fighting the ways that they would address your threat or denying them resources. Yes. And, and what? So it's, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, and once again, this this particular when I when you frame it as aggro control, which it's not described as in the original schools, but when you say it that way, people can immediately yes. draw the lineage to modern decks. And through like Delver, yeah, uh, Delver is a good example in all formats. Really, Delver is the yeah. prototypical aggro control deck. And if Delver of Secrets existed in 1996, it would almost certainly be in this deck. <laughs> <laughs> Instead, they're forced to rely on accelerants like. Moxen, Birds of Paradise, and to some degree Mana Drain to power out forecasting cost creatures. So this, is a, this is a 1995 deck. Okay. But the point, yeah. the point and the tenets of this school are very easily demonstrated in the threat plus disruption or protection, depending on how you want to look at it. Yes, I agree. You know, it's interesting. He, Han, uses two different variations of his theory description. One of them was offensive overkill theory which I don't like very much, but the second one was offensive balance theory. And I think that one is a much better description in that you are balancing between presenting a threat and protecting the threat. Yep. Pretty much the hallmark of aggro control through the... You know what's weird is I've just just looked comparing the second schools of magic versus the the popular 5.4 one. He's got these, these, again, these labels to each version. And this, this, the 2.0 version under the Handelman school, he says, he says that the, essentially the theory is that fast, large creatures win the game with proper protection. So in a sense, he's, he is, but that, that line is not actually in the 5.4 version description of the school. And he says, in addition to using black discard and interferes with permission, mission strategies and removes anti-creature threats and then counter magic defends global against global anti-creature cards. So he, he is, in a sense, this is aggro control. You know, it's it's got some big threats, and it protects it with counter magic. And in in instead of him, he probably used arrest today, but that's you know that's what you get. Um, so I think that just underscores the way you described the deck, the way you described it as aggro control. Mm-hmm. But it's weird that that's not in the later popular version of this of his work. In any case, so we've covered the Weissman School, which can be encapsulated as control. Mm-hmm. The O'Brien school, which can be encapsulated as, boy... Uh, tempo, te- mana denial. Tempo, mana denial. Maybe prison to some, but not prison, exactly. Prison, sure. That's the best way of yeah. describing it. And the Handelman school, which can be encapsulated as agro control. Right. What's missing, then, from that triumvirate that we do see today? Well, combo, obviously. So why do you think that is... Well, I mean, it's it's also possible that this time there weren't a lot of well-developed combo decks. The combo decks didn't really emerge. I mean, there were certainly some combo decks, but they were all in the degenerate era. That is the pre-DCI, right, where you played with like 20 Black Lotus. Um, <laughs> you know, the first combo decks that emerged were 
in the very popular decks were the Prosperity decks. And they didn't come out until the summer of 96, I think, or late 96. And that's when you had Prosperity printed, and you had Mystical Tutor printed, and you had uh, Mana Crypt printed, and they were all legal as four ofs. So you, so players started building four Mana Crypt, four Mana Vault, four Prosperity, four Mystical Tutor decks. And, and those became the Snake Basket. Snake Basket was one of the win conditions in that deck, and they used Black Vise. And the whole idea was it would play Prosperity over and over again and kill you with Black Vise or run you out of cards and deck, and it would, it would win mm-hmm. because you... So players who play, have played, who play today, have played for the last couple of years, maybe even played for the last 10 years, you're all spoiled when it comes to combo. <laughs> We're talking about an era yes. before the storm mechanic was even thought of, an era before, say, most of the modern two-card combo kills. Any major combo deck in the last 10 years that's gone through old extended to legacy to whatnot, None of those kills existed back in this time period. There's no key vault. There's no illusions donate. There's no, uh, there's no enduring renewal and goblin bombardment. Doomsday. Yeah. There's no panda burst. Flash. Flash. There's no flash. There's none of these things. There's just nothing you can do, can assemble, even with all of your there power was, cards. There was time vault, but time vault was very quickly restricted and then. Right. Where at this particular period in time, there was just no two card thing you could do that would just completely decimate your opponent. So you were forced to rely on. And those that were, were, were immediately restricted, like balance. Right. You were forced to rely on then amassing a huge amount of cards and parlaying that into a huge amount of mana to draw more cards <laughs> to do yeah. one of the short list of things you just mentioned. Yep. So and, and I would agree so that that we are simply in the in between period, in between when combo was the the best thing you could do in Magic when you could play twenty lotuses. Right. <laughs> the DCI came to its senses, controlled the right. format, and then cut everything off to, to the point that really dealing on fair resources, either control or creatures, was the way the game was defined at this stage. Control of time. creatures denial strategy. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, in, I mean, I, I, this is getting to a point. There is no long school in here, but we, we think, at least I think there is a long school. Mm. And you can see it in the degenerate era that precedes the DC, that now the DCI. Mm-hmm. It becomes very evident with the prosperity decks of 96. Then the, then the printing of academy powers up those prosperity decks. And then they become academy decks because you can start winning with stroke and things like that. And even more, you get more draw sevens, like time spiral and things like that. And the academy deck, you know, sometimes uses uh, power artifact as another combo in there. But then it, instead of uh, Stroke of Genius or Care of X Torch is the win condition, in 2002, Tendrils is printed and replaces it. And you get long. You get Yogmoss Will is the main card with Burning Wish. And then instead of, you, know, you have Lion's Eye Diamond in some of these decks, then you have continuous printings, Chrome Mox, Mox Opal, to the, to the very present moment, right? Mm-hmm. Now we have decks today, and we just talked about your Burning Long Primer, that, similar to the Weissman School, can trace their lineage all the way back to the early combo decks, and you can draw very literal parallels, card for card, for how right. those decks were constructed and so, something so what they are the played. Prin- what are the principles of the Long School? I'd say first, the principle is speed. The Long School relies on a map artifact acceleration. So in the early version, you know, you had 20 Lotus. <laughs> in the secondary version, you had four Mana Crypt and four Mana Vaults. In the most recent version, you use Mox Opal and 
Chrome mocks. Um, that's the first thing. Lots of high density of artifact acceleration. Second, you use a one or two or very, very few wind conditions that rely on a critical mass. So in the case of tendrils, it's a critical mass of storm. In the case of Caravex Torch or whatever, a critical mass of mana, which usually is preceded by a bunch of spells. And third, the long school or the school relies on highly efficient, usually restricted draw spells, like an often symmetrical draw spells, like Wheel of Fortune, Prosperity, Time Twister, etc. And I think history has shown us that that school isn't going anywhere. It has broken off some splinters, certain decks that had some aberrant construction or were enabled by some odd printings. <coughs> but the simple fact is, is that even in 2012, going into 13 here, we still can build a very competitive and relevant combo deck that follows exactly that same model and plays in almost exactly the same way. Right. If we, if I wanted to dig down, I'd say that one of the assumptions is that speed can overwhelm control because, in a sense, you can overwhelm counter magic no matter how efficient. I was shocked in playing my Burning Long deck that I was able to beat cards like Flusterstorm, Mental Misstep, and Spell Pierce. I would just, I'm just faster. You just can't stop, can't stop. Mana Drain, of course, is slow, but in any case, but, but it's a little bit weird to call it the Long School because, <laughs> you know, that, you know, uh, Mike Long, the original Burning Long deck came out in 2002, right? So we're sort of mapping that term backwards. Yeah, it is. And, but I think that just like most of the rest of these schools, I think the name Long somewhat is in the spirit of the exercise, if not a great literal definition for the whole history of this kind of combo. Right. You might, if you weren't going by people's names, you might call it, say, the Draw 7 school. <laughs> something like that, but right. we're not getting bent out of shape about the labels here. Right. Steve, we've covered now four schools, three of which were Hans, one of which we've retroactively added to this exercise, but you mentioned six or seven in this latest version, so what are we leaving out? Well, he the second school he describes is the, is the Kim school, and the Kim school refers to John Kim, um, and he says that uh, this school, an older article he wrote, which means it must be really old from our view. <laughs> but it has these three principles. He says, first, every card must be maximally useful. And then he has a paragraph describing that. Second, no reliance on combinations. Um, and he has a paragraph describing what he means by that. And third, minimal mana requirements, which means this, the spells must be the lowest casting cost possible and have as little colored mana as possible. Mm-hmm. So he says, you know, sometimes flash counter is better than counter spell for that reason. Um, so that's, that's the description of that school. And then he has a, a deck list, which looks a lot like a Wiseman deck. What's your take on this school, Kevin? Yeah, this is one of those ones that we alluded to up front that basically doesn't actually firmly govern how you build a particular deck or play a particular deck. It speaks to play, in fact, very little. And I think this has really just become essentially fundamental deck building tenets that players are encouraged to abide by, but also allowed to disobey (laughs) in the right circumstances. These things speak to basically how your deck can be streamlined, lower casting cost, easier to cast things, fix your mana, keep the casting costs reasonable in terms of color requirements. But at the same time, you can apply this, these ideas to any archetype, any deck. So it misses out on being a fully formed school and has just become, I think, subsumed into the notion of deck construction. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I applaud on for attempting to differentiate schools. I think I think his analysis fails here. And 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 I and that's very easy to say as a historical critique. Again, maybe at the time, you know, one 
couldn't as easily perceive the difference between maybe philosophical approaches to deck strategy and deck construction vis-a-vis good deck building principles. Yeah, and that's one of the things that really stood out to me that anyone who goes back and reads this or anyone who's trying to internalize what we're discussing here appreciate that back in 1996 you could have what are well-formed and sophisticated theories about schools and tenants and such. And in order to implement them, you still basically just need to put four swords to plowshares in most of your decks. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's very difficult. And as you said, Rob, Robert did a good job, I think, in listing this out. But at the same time, it's hard to tease it out given the limited card pool and narrow card pool of what's playable really in 1996. Yeah. So there's one other school, I think, in his original, it's this, the Masonette School. And the Masonette School was added in his last version, I think largely after, um, you know, on the basis of Jester's Cap. He used school as basically card removal theory, which means not removal from the board, but from the game, i.e. Jester's Capping your opponent mm-hmm. until they die. Uh, it's a very tenuous school, if even a school. <laughs> I think this shows that the later years of this document being updated were starting to react more to shifts in the metagame than real fundamental theories. Jester's Cap had a big impact on Vintage at the time, and it was, I think there's some debate about its whether or not you could rely on it as a primary tactic, as Han described it, card removal. And so yeah. I think... This is another, like the Kim School, I think this is another thing that has become just more fundamental than informing a whole way of building a deck and playing a deck because I think everyone can probably pretty clearly understand that exiling your opponent's cards is not a, (laughs) it's not, it's not a strategy that you can employ basically in any format as a path to victory, one that governs your whole deck construction and play decisions. It really is just a metagame announcement, basically, from this era that has some interesting tenets that surround it, but doesn't really mature into a full school. Yeah. It's, wor- well, it's worth well, noting that there are plenty of decks. I, I postulated with, with you, Steve, during our show prep that there are plenty of decks throughout history that do seek to do one thing and only one thing every game over and over again. And so this has a little bit of weight to it in terms of drawing a lineage. Yeah. But that's a pretty loose school. It doesn't speak to how you're planning to win, just that some decks really need to execute on one card or one combination of cards in order to win. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, that's an interesting point. So, you know, to some extent, you could critique Han or us, <laughs> either Han for coming up with these schools or us for reifying them by saying, these aren't schools. These are, you know, particular contextual circumstantial approaches based upon the extent card pool you know but but i think i think regardless of where you come out there is something useful from the exercise of saying there are schools and there is something useful from trying to rehabilitate you know these these schools to the extent that you can and so i i think kevin what you're saying is there is something to be said for this idea of a focused strategy based upon a particular available card maybe that is a school maybe that's a, a basic approach maybe not embodied in a single strategy but a range of strategies mm-hmm. and it might be the school quote unquote that is forced to revise itself mo- uh, the most quickly out of all these meaning it is completely dependent on what's available and viable in a given format maybe in some cases how interesting 
in some cases like in type 2 for example in standard there is very frequently no one go to card there's very frequently no deck that's just trying to do this one thing over and over again right there f- but there are advantages there's the, the flash deck mm-hmm. exactly you know, how interesting it would it be to flip this mason at school on its head and say the doomsday is a, is a but you're removing your cards not your opponents <laughs> yes and that's a good point too is i think the whole card removal thing you really should look past that because again that was just a metagame thing it was just about jester's cap at the time but the yeah. the thing you can tease out if you read between the lines is trying to do just one thing and i think that ironically doomsday removing most of your own deck is an example of that that's a deck that really is trying to do that one thing every game over and over again yep so i mean granted it can go fast bond yog moss will tenral but it is trying to especially my legacy version has to do yeah the legacy version is a better example of that so i mean i don't Imagine Robert Hahn thought that, uh, you know, 16 years later, someone would be 15, you know, 17 years later, someone would be carefully inspecting his work mm-hmm. for historical accuracy. But it, I think it's a very useful project just to see. It gives us an understanding of where both that the format we play now is truly timeless in a sense, but also a better appreciation and understanding of the decks that we currently play. I agree completely. And it, it really is to Hahn's credit. And a little bit of luck, I think, on the historical scope, that the game today really does map pretty closely to the way it did 15 years ago or more. There, We have these basic concepts of you having to answer your opponent's threats or producing a threat and then protect it. And just this whole notion of resource management really has lived on through the whole history of the game. And Vintage is the one format where you can really com- you can compare your deck to someone's from 1996 and say, yep, you had these cards, I have these yep. cards. <laughs> So I would love to hear what our listeners think about what we're saying, and I'd encourage them. We'll put in the show notes the link to the Schools of Magic, but they should read it if they haven't before. It's you know a very well written thing. It's very fun to read and think about what schools exist today. I mean, I'm arguing. I think that there are other schools that exist today, um, but we've had trouble supporting at least my contention vis-a-vis the Dredge as a, as a school. Yeah, and for something like that. Where did it begin? It's easy to say that Dredge is an animal unto itself. It doesn't adhere to any of these schools. It has its own mechanical and constructural tenets. And we can talk about how it exists today, but the real interesting exercise is where did it begin? Is there something right. that's before Dredge that's in the same lineage? Yep. I mean, if you look at, like, Dredge has discard, has a reanimation spell, you know, uses very efficient spells, I think that you can compare it favorably to reanimator decks. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's a, a debatable point. <laughs> and the, the, it's very interesting, too, that the notion of bringing creatures out of the graveyard for zero mana existed all the way in Alpha with Nether Shadow. So it's not it's not Icarid, which was which had its precursor in Ashen Ghoul, and it's not Narcomoeba exactly, but it was still there right from the beginning. In nineteen ninety three we had the makings of Dredge, ironically. Yep. Just not the mechanic itself. Bazaar and Nether Shadow were printed in nineteen ninety three. That's right. <laughs> yeah, nevertheless. Never forget Bazaar. All right, well, this has been a fascinating discussion. If people think there are other schools, they should share them think with us what they think they are. And if people want to see this material in great detail with lots more discussion, your articles have that. Check it out.
Steve, the time has finally come for something that we've been hoping and expecting for for a long time, and that is the full vintage card pool on Magic Online. Almost there. The Power Nine are coming to the Moto Cube, but in the same announcement that brought that information, there was a bit at the end provided by... Now, this is in Max McCall's article from last week. The bit provided by Chris... Kiritz was, with Magic's 20th anniversary on the horizon, and I'm quoting here, I can't think of a better way to celebrate than letting our fans collect and build decks with these amazing cards before the end of 2013. So we have confirmation of a sort that by this time next year, we will have some way to acquire, play, use the Power 9 that that are being added to the Moto Cube. It's more than just the Power 9, too. They're filling in some gaps like Mind Twist and some other stuff, Mana Drain, that that may not have come out or may not currently be available. This means that we're finally going to get to the point where you can play the paper format and the digital format side-by-side, effectively equivalent, and in real time. And this is something that can only be a great thing, in my opinion, for the vintage format. But that's the thing we're here to discuss is the value of this, what it means for the future, for the format, for all of the unforeseen consequences, et cetera, et cetera. Steve, I, I can only assume that you, like me, are very happy about this announcement. I think it's, it's great. It's, I mean, it's been a long time coming. Now, you have some thoughts on the Magic Online, f- not format, but the medium, the software. How do you feel about that as a recent user of the tool? Well, let me just clarify. When I say user, I have the program downloaded, and I've purchased a lot of cards for it, but I have yet to play a single game on Magic Online. Okay, um, so you're pretty fresh. I'm fresh. I mean, I've, I've used the program you know, a dozen times. I go in there once a month and, and buy some cards, buy some tickets, and go to a website and purchase cards so I can begin accumulating. You know, I've, For over a year now, I've been buying vintage staples. Um, but I've not played a single game, and I have to say that almost every time I go to the program, I find it to be horrible. Um, first, loading the program sometimes takes like a half hour. I'll, you know, open it once a month. It seems to me it's ridiculous that it should take me a half hour to update it. I don't know why it can't update while I'm using it, you know. Um, second, maybe, maybe that's an unfair complaint. Second, at almost every time, despite using the program 10 to 12 times since 2000, I'd say 2011, certainly 2011, maybe even 2010, I can never remember how to use it. <laughs> so I'll open it up, and I don't remember how to get to my deck. I, my deck editor. I don't remember how to get to the place where I, you know, exchange, trade cards. It's just a completely mystifying, counterintuitive program. It's it's it, what I imagine like some really ugly, you know, uh, early web-based platform would look like. It's just I, incredibly counterintuitive. It's the opposite of what Steve Jobs would design. In my <laughs> I think I have used the program many years ago, not the current versions. And it was only briefly, a matter of weeks or months. And I would say that as not a current user of the program, but as a current user of the Magic community at large, I would say your opinion is probably shared by many. It is, in my estimation, pretty widely understood that the program is wildly successful despite itself. (laughs) 
while <laughs> the quality of the game and the draw to the game has far exceeded any speed bumps or impediments that the software itself puts to actually playing. And it's I think it's been long ago ingrained in the community that there are certain things that Magic Online will do to the game, meaning cause you to make mistakes or certain things you just have to get used to. And you're going to occasionally not play a land on the first turn and say go instead of doing what you should. Yeah. <laughs> and these things, obviously, you can minimize them with experience, and many people have. But yeah. I'm with you in that the software itself feels archaic. It feels like... I mean, I see very, this is very unfair, but stylistically, aesthetically, and from a user experience standpoint, I see very little difference between this software today and the old Chandelar game. Exactly. It feels like I'm still playing a late 80s, early 90s game. The text, the the um, font, mm-hmm. the just it, it looks like a I don't know like a, a computer from the mid '90s program program from the uh, application for a computer from the mid '90s. Mm-hmm. When I when I it's just hideous. Um, it, it it's it's very difficult to follow. When I opened up the program, I I don't even know how to get to my collection. I have to be told that there's a button at the bottom of the screen, this tiny little button that says collection. Mm-hmm. How much, why wouldn't there be a button at the front that says that that's how I get to my collection, you know? And, and when I click the button, it's just a very ugly program and not very aesthetically attractive. And there's a, a pretty high learning curve. A high learning curve. This thing looks so complicated. Why should I have to open up a menu that looks like a Super Nintendo Koei <laughs> RPG <laughs> menu? <laughs> <laughs> Steve, clearly you need to pump a little bit more into your intelligence and dexterity. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we can harp, we we shouldn't harp on the program any longer than that. I don't think it's pretty. I think well understood, and we're just. When you open it, I want to see three things. I want to see a big Apple button, you know, <laughs> like, like an iPod or an iPhone button that says play. I want to see a button that says build. And I see, want to see a button that says trade. That's all I want to see. I don't need to see any other junk. <laughs> I don't need to see things about, uh, I don't know what, all these other random buttons that are there. Can't someone with like an Apple mindset go in and fix this program? Is it really that hard to do? Well, I am sure that this is the topic of much discussion and gnashing of teeth at uh, Wizards of the Coast headquarters and their associated developers. So I don't want to assume that they're not aware of these things, but at the same time, it appears to be lingering longer than it really should be. I don't know what to expect from the near future, but I don't think that the inclusion of vintage, the, the ultimate vintage card pool, is any kind of driving force for them to update the thing. If they were going to make a major design change, the likes of which you're alluding to from an aesthetic standpoint, they should have done it by now. So I don't know what to say. I don't know what to expect. But since we are mostly talking about vintage here, do you think this has a particular impact on the acceptance, the use, the growth of the vintage online format? The potential is enormous. Mm -hmm. You know, go ahead. I, I just would, in my opinion, the program... The, the vintage format online will succeed despite the software. I think one of the things that concerns me is how tiny Legacy is on Magic Online. I mean, vintage has unlimited potential online. Mm-hmm. There's no reserve list in the way of printing a million black lodi. Mm-hmm. Right? There's nothing that can. There's no limit to the potential for vintage play, except for cost of cards online. And I think one of the things that concerns me is that 
People say, you know, well, the, the cost of cards online is so much cheaper than real life. That's true for some cards, but not all. <laughs> a lot of really cheap staples that you can get in real life are actually more expensive on Modo, mm-hmm. such that there's, I think there is a perceptual problem. The cards on Magic Online, which aren't even real cards, are too expensive, and I, I share that sentiment. It's a very interesting dynamic. One of the reasons why vintage is so niche is the cost, as we all know. One of the reasons for the cost, of course, is availability. The availability yeah. metric that you're alluding to is turned on its head for for Magic Online. Certain cards like yeah. Force of Will are the the top cards, and cards Force like Force of Will is one hundred and fifty dollars. There's no excuse for that. I have not bought Force of Wills, and I'm not going to buy them at one hundred and fifty dollars. That's absurd. And cards like Mind Twist, which are only legal and played in this vintage format, will probably be two dollars. Or, or a better example, a card like Time Twister, a card that yeah. is legitimately one to two hundred dollars or more, depending on edition in the print world, it'll it'll probably be a five to ten dollar well, card on. I don't have examples off the top of my head, but there are cards that in the print world are like two up two bucks and nine dollars online. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of and the, to me that's just crazy. A lot of the earliest stuff in Magic Online, the invasion stuff like Vindicate and Pernicious Deed, those cards are the equivalent of alpha in the printed world. Now, they can reprint anything they want online, and they have, and they will, and they do. But I think this speaks to it's, – it's just going to be very fascinating to watch because as you and I are very much interested in the health of vintage and it's growing, we have to reset our expectations in terms of the secondary market because a card like Force of Will, which is obviously expensive because of legacy and casual to some degree, but legacy – is I think it's keeping that format from growing anymore. And it, this is something that's been widely theorized and discussed in recent history, especially with this announcement about the vintage cards becoming available. But vintage is just going to be a casualty, a collateral damage, if Force of Will keeps its price tag that it currently has. It's, it's insane. They, they need to do something about that. And assuming that they do to promote these eternal formats, then we end up in another very interesting scenario whereby you could have a true meritocracy of formats. In the, exactly. in the print world today, you don't have a meritocracy of vintage next to legacy because vintage costs two, two yep. to ten times as much, depending on your deck. Let the best format win. Exactly. But once you're on a level playing field from an expense standpoint, then people can just look at their collection and say, man, I want to play vintage instead of legacy. That's right. I mean, if, if, if vintage became cheap enough, first of all, vintage could be one of the cheapest formats on Magic Online. There's no reason in theory it couldn't be. Oh, yeah, I think that, that there will be a period in which it actually is. If price is, is a function of supply versus demand, and you have a relatively equal supply of cards over uh, across formats, then demand should be highest in the most popular formats, i.e. standard, which means that vintage could, at least in the initial iteration, be one of the cheaper formats in, on the on the platform, and it should be one of the cheaper formats. This in, that in, has everything to do, of course, with how they disseminate these Power 9 cards. So we're speaking yes. theoretically, of course. I will be really upset if they do anything less than mass distribution of Power 9. There should be far more Power 9 cards online than there are in the real world. You know, I'm close. I, I've, I've got to say, there is one thing... Oh, I'm going to have to scan this article again. There is one thing that really stood out to me in Chris uh, Kiritz's announcement where he said, I'm going to quote again, we want the cards to be accessible, but not ordinary. And to this end, we are not going to rush to a decision. We will continue to tweak various ideas already have, et cetera, et cetera. Find plan to make the most sense for us and our players. We will bring the power nine to magic online, but hold on. 
the sentence right before what I just quoted was, ultimately we want players to have more access to these cards than they might in paper, but we also want to ensure that the cards maintain their status as magic royalty. I'm all for the mystique of the format. I really am concerned about what they have in mind, because the only way you can keep in Magic Online the phrase magic royalty, all that equates to, in my opinion, is scarcity and therefore cost. There's no way you could refer to something as magic royalty. But they also said they want it to be accessible. I know, I know. So what they're saying is in direct contradiction. What you're, what you, that means is you're just not going to be able to get this card out of a booster pack. You're not going to have Master's Edition Power 9. They're going to have some other way to disseminate it, and I'm a, I fully expect, and if you read this, I think in any kind of logical fashion, you're going to conclude that they're going to be low supply. That's really well. What does that mean to you? I mean, I I don't. So let's assume there are three thousand people who play Magic online regularly. How many power? How many? And you know there are oh roughly twenty three thousand copies of Black Lotus printed. Oh jeez. How many Black Lotus should there exist? Should there be on Magic online? I have I have no way to answer that. I'm not versed at all in the numbers of players on Magic online. I understand what you're saying about drawing a comparison to the real world printing, but. It has everything to do with how many of any other card there are in Modo, and I don't know the answer to that. I'm telling you, though, that they've made a statement of principle here, which, in my understanding, can only be implemented through scarcity. <laughs> that's the only other way you can maintain a card as quote-unquote royalty. There's nothing else that's special about a printed card. Yes, you can make them foil, but that's just garbage animation on your screen. Some people like that, but that's not royalty. So the this tells me that at least initially these cards are going to be scarce, and that means that we could, uh, again, at least initially, end up in a situation whereby Vintage Online has exactly the same problem that its print counterpart does. What if they keep these things so scarce that a digital Black Lotus costs 500 tickets? Well, then we, then we haven't solved anything. Now, do I expect it to be that bad? No. I really, I know that they are smart enough that they realize that the 500 ticket Black Lotus is probably a bad thing. But at the same time, their statement of principle here speaks to expense. It speaks directly to these cards being expensive. Now, the alternative to that is, is it could just be an initial expense. It could, meaning it could be a timed exclusive sort of thing where if you want the first couple of Black Lotuses, you're going to have to do something special, win an event, et cetera, et cetera. But they'll keep introducing them over time, a la promos that are evergreen that you can get and the, the quantity will continue to grow. I hope that that's at least, I hope that they have a method that doesn't mean royalty for the rest of time meaning they're going to short print these things and then never do it again, a la Alpha and Beta. Yeah, that would be... that would be. I think it would be just a colossal... The expectations and the potential of Magic Online. Yeah. The whole purpose of Magic Online is that you don't have to worry about card limitations. <laughs> that would be no other thing I think you can describe it than a failure. <laughs> but at the same time, I recognize that this is a for-profit company and they are essentially milking... The Don't they make profit by selling cards? I know. I mean, there's I know. no reserve list. Don't get me so. wrong. Don't get me wrong. But they're still, they still have, this is the, this is the end of the line in terms of historical printings. This is the end. This is the last thing that's never existed on Moto. After this, everything else will be new and the print and digital will be in lockstep. So they're milking a sort of mystique here that is the last one that they can do. There's no Portal 3 after this. There's no there's no starter. There's no antiquities. It's it's all come out. 
with a few middling exceptions. I don't think everything has absolutely been printed, but this is the end of the line in terms of drawing Mystique and drawing people in for this old card that you can't get now. And so, sadly, they're going to milk it, and I just hope they have a plan that draws the cost down over time. I'm not going to be an early adopter of this, and it sounds to me like you aren't either. If a Black Lotus costs anything more than, say, 50 or or $100, most of the rest of the world isn't either. Yeah, that would be insane. It would be a real shame. And Wizards, if any of you are listening to this, and I know a couple of you are people we talk to, but I recognize that you need to keep your mystique, and I recognize that there's some value in that. Please don't make these cards cost 50 to to $100 for the long term. For an initial release, sure, make them rare, maybe a prizes, special promos, but don't. That can't be the model. This we need. A they have to give vintage. A, they have to give vintage a chance. Right. We need that meritocracy. Yeah. They, I mean, it's only fair. And look, if if they're right, then no matter what you set the initial price, if the Magic Online is popular enough, because uh, because a it's a good platform, and b you can play vintage and other great formats, then then there will be more demand. Prices will go up. Secondary market owners won't complain. Then you can print. They can sell them, and you can print more. You know, it's like you need to continue to support the long-term growth of this format. You've got to keep these. You've got to give a lot. You've got to print more Force of Wills. Yeah, got to. And sadly, now Black Lotus and Force of Will are different animals, of course. Uh, so the cost structures for the two of them are going to be different. But the simple fact that Force of Will is still as high as it is is a bad sign. They have the capacity to control the price of cards that grow out of control from a price standpoint. They have the capacity to do that at almost the drop of a hat. Their time to market for digital cards is a fraction of what it is for print cards. And they could come up with something. They should, in my opinion, have a something of a stock market kind of approach whereby if the price of a certain card passes a threshold, that they have some kind of emergency way to introduce new ones into the market as prizes for daily tournaments, for example. You could have a switch that you pull and say, you know what, we need more of this card. So today's tournaments, I'll give you one of these if you make top eight, something like that. Something where you're rewarding the community, but still reacting to the community and and keeping things under control. I just and plus they don't profit at all from Force of Will being a hundred dollar card. That's the other thing. It, it's yeah. something that's well known to vintage players and speculators and and aficionados or or deserters of the reserved list over time. Wizards doesn't benefit from the reserved list. Yes, they don't want their cards to be five hundred dollars, but the reserved list hampers them from doing anything about it. In, in the case of most of the print examples, yeah. But in the case of the real world examples, for uh, for look at uh, Tarmogoyf. That's the best example you can have for the print world. Tarmogoyf is fortunately in the in the category of cards that have grown in price to a ridiculous degree, but they're going to do something about it. They're going to print more of them. Now, this we're not here to discuss how that's actually going to impact Tarmogoyf's price or demand, but the point is is they can do something about it, and look how long it took them for Tarmogoyf. Now, yep. obviously, Tarmogoyf was a $2 card when it was first spoiled, and it went up to a 10 or $20 card, and then it got ridiculous over a long period of time, but... In the digital space, they don't need to wait for that kind of proof to pile up. They don't need to wait more than a week or two, and then they can say, you know what? We need a couple more thousand force of wills in the world. Here they are. I just really hope that they build us the environment where we can have that meritocracy, because as you and I know, vintage is an awesome format. And we want we want everyone that loves Legacy today to have the same opportunity to enjoy vintage. Because we think that they will. Yeah, Legacy is much smaller on MTGO than it should be, and I think Force of Will is a big reason why. Mm -hmm. No doubt. And the 
support and continued attendance and success of the Star City Games Open series for Legacy is a demonstration of the fact that there is, as you've said, there should be more people playing Legacy Online. That interest is obviously there. So, um, but let's, I think we can leave that cost and popularity issue there for now and shift gears and talk about some upside. So assuming that vintage, assuming that Black Lotus becomes available, people have them in their collection, what are they going to do? They're going to start playing vintage matches and tournaments online, which is obviously the whole point. It's going to be awesome. But it also means that we're going to have something that we don't have today, at least not within reason, and that is a comparison, a distinction, a disparity perhaps between the printed vintage game, the metagame, and the online metagame, which is something that gets a lot of discussion, and there's a lot of give and take and information crossover when you get to the very popular formats like Standard and Limited, something that us vintage players are going to be just getting for the first time, and it remains to be seen exactly how that dynamic breaks out. Mm -hmm. There's no reason to think that the vintage format is special in the sense that the information flow will be any different than it is, but it's obviously a question of degree, how, yes. how many players we get that this whole popularity issue we just discussed. Well, is one thing that concerns me is, you know, you Lion's Eye Diamond is is like $150 or something. Really? Yeah, that th- that enforceable are the most expensive cards. I don't know if Lion's Eye Diamond is still at that price, but it's very expensive. And I don't what I don't want there to be the, the suppose that they everything goes as we plan plan. They reprint Force of Will and they make power affordable. Well, what would be really sh- a shame is if there's a particular archetype that is popular in real life that is inaccessible online. That would be a problem. Oh, that's, you know, in, in my show prep, I didn't even think about that when I was thinking about metagame implications. But you're right. Look at Dragon. Dragon yeah. is one of those decks that no one online would reasonably want to play because the mechanics of the thing, which you can do so easily in paper, involve dozens and dozens of clicks and possibly timing out as you mill yourself and respond to a bunch of triggers. And, well, it's like trying to play eggs online, which has become a very interesting recent example of a of a very successful deck that is mechanically difficult and challenging in print paper, but not impossible, demonstrably not impossible, but functionally impossible on Magic Online. That would be undesirable, to say the least. But you know what? You are completely correct. At the same time, that's just something I think that the community at large has come to live with. That kind of deck, that kind of heavily mechanical deck is being discouraged by R&D, so you don't see those kind of things in Standard, for example. But in Eternal Formats, it's just the sort of thing that we as a community, I think, are going to have to live with. One of the benefits of Magic Online is that the interface requires you to make a few sacrifices, I'm not saying that the developers or R&D should collectively give up on this topic. <laughs> there should be a creative software solution to any problem, really. Interface problem, I should say. But the simple fact is is there will be some casualties. On the flip side, though, you get the benefits of playing fast games. Vintage, just like its other modern counterparts, involves a lot of mechanical stuff like shuffling and tutoring that get a lot easier. Uh, lots of mechanics like, say, Dredge, for example. The Dredge deck is the reverse of the Eggs deck. It gets a lot easier to do online. You're not missing triggers. The 
act of dredging six cards happens in an instant as opposed to possible fumblings from a player and cards getting mixed up between zones when your graveyard has 45 cards in it. These kind of things are all benefit from a mechanical standpoint, mm-hmm. which may mean, I don't know, it's it's too early to tell, but it may mean that certain archetypes are artificially influenced in their popularity online. So would you eventually buy in if, if things were... I will not be an early adopter. I'm not interested in spending the money at this time, and I'm taking a wait-and-see approach. Eventually, possibly, especially if they can get the card prices under control. I really don't want to spend, again, thousands of dollars to acquire a vintage staple collection. But that having been said, I it's going to have a lot to do with how widely it's accepted. I can play vintage online through Cockatrice right now, and I could have in the past through other programs, and I don't. But that is mostly to do with the quality of the interface and finding opponents and the risk-reward kind of exercise. Plus, yeah, the ability, the, the spectrum and variety of players. They, if Wizards supports Vintage Online, mm-hmm. you get great tournaments. I would love to play a huge online Vintage tournament. But I'm not going to invest, you know, I've I bought a number of staples, but I'm not going to buy everything unless I have an opportunity to really play Vintage in a real way, or a sustained way. Agreed. The phrase you hit on there, too, if Wizards supports Vintage, speaks to the whole meritocracy topic. Once you've got all of the cards available, there is no difference for them in supporting Vintage versus Legacy. There is no difference. You want to run a tournament? It's the same. You want to release new cards? You reprint them. You want to see what's expensive and drive the cost down? You do that. There is no difference between Vintage and Legacy in the digital community once all the cards are available. And I hope Wizards recognizes that and doesn't, again, past this initial release of the power, yes, yes, Magic Royalty, okay, once you get past that hump, once you get the card prices under control such that everyone can play it, I hope that they recognize that these formats don't need to live in this rarefied air in the long run. Mm -hmm. And sadly, I think Legacy is suffering right now, which is not a good sign. But at the same time, legacy and vintage players, there's a lot of overlap there. And hopefully the introduction of vintage cards will give a jolt in the arm, give it some an influx of players. And those are the kind of players that are likely to play vintage and legacy. I'm very I'm very excited to see what the metagame impacts are. I'm very excited to start hearing about vintage dailies. No, I don't expect the results. Yeah, I don't expect them to fight. It's it's sad to see how small I think I think the classic the classic formats basically collapsed, no longer exists. Yeah. I've tried to find data and I couldn't find any. That that's really a shame, but that format had some baggage with it being kind of little brother that and and everybody recognizing that it had no future, so no one wanted to invest. It's no surprise to me that that format died, and it's no surprise to me, and, and I, I do not think that that portends death for Vintage Online. Yeah, I mean, but it does suggest that um, although there's great potential, the realities may not be as accommodating as we hope. Agreed. I think that if we had, I think that we should come up with a wish list for Wizards. You and I, and taking feedback from the community, but I think we should come up with a wish list of what would really be good for Vintage, what we want to see in online Vintage, what will draw players in, what will drive popularity, and what will sell cards, which is what they want. And I don't have it all at the top of my head right now, but this whole meritocracy concept is key. I think they need to support Vintage and Legacy in equal quantities and let the formats duke it out. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because I mean it when I say there isn't, from their standpoint, there's no difference in supporting one versus the other. They've, they, we're kind of living the dream, and I think it'll be very interesting to see. 
And I'm, it's all self-serving, of course, because as I said, I really want to see, to start to see those results. And I hope that this whole business of them not publishing daily results from standard and other things does not, no. I don't, well, I what, is what do you mean? I, I am speaking out of my element here, but I've read some stuff and heard on some that they recently made a policy adjustment that they weren't going to be publishing the full results of all the daily tournaments that go on. Why? They, they had some, in my opinion, BS about they didn't want formats to evolve too quickly because of the results. They felt that formats like standard were getting quote unquote solved too quickly. And so they wanted to slow the dissemination of information to allow there to be more gradual evolution. So controlling. <sighs> I know. That's the kind of ham handed decision making that, that wizards should not be making. I couldn't agree more. And I, I don't have a lot else to contribute to this topic other than that statement right there, but I couldn't agree with you more. Wow. I, I would say for any aspiring vintage players, that's a very small concern right now. The notion of there being so much change in the vintage metagame that they, <laughs> they suppress daily vintage results is laughable at this point. If that's a problem we have, I look forward to it. I think the converse is probably true when it comes to vintage. I think that they will be very excited to promote new results. The first top eight from a online vintage tournament that has more than eight people in it. I think that'll get a little bit of coverage. And if it doesn't, that's on my wish list. <laughs> I want Wizards to promote and socialize the results of vintage tournaments and say, here you go. And I also, yes. it won't take long to get to this point. In fact, it may happen on day one for all I know. But I'm also very interested to see statistics on how many Black Lotuses there are available in real life and how many there are online now. <laughs> I think it would be absolutely unacceptable if any card for vintage costs over $100. I think they need to make all the cards relatively cheap. I, I don't, I, I, I just think that's the period. You can't, I think it's, in, I, I just think that's really an important accessibility issue. I think they need to offer prize support mm-hmm. for tournaments. I think they should, I think there should be tournament series, including a large annual tournament like vintage championships. It'd be great if they could even feed vintage into other mm-hmm. major tournaments. They have demonstrated throughout history, as you well know, as our listeners should remember, about the Invitational in the past having Vintage as part of it, and a number of other niche formats like Five Color and Cube and whatnot. I can't imagine that Vintage won't work its way into a championship series or an Invitational or a Community Cup or something along the way. It, it, it only holds with history that it will. I think it, it is relatively easy to play Vintage or play Magic online and record your games, is it not? I've seen people do it. I know that it's done, sure. You're not talking, are you talking about streaming? You're not talking about streaming though, you're talking about retro. Recording or streaming, like, I think it would be, I would definitely be open to that if I could do that on MTGO. Oh, well you can. And there are, there are plenty of people, community celebrities who stream their Magic Online games right now, and it's mostly to do with popular formats like Standard or Limited or Cube. I think that it is definitely a, it's definitely very likely that someone will be streaming vintage content at some point. The quality and popularity of that content will have everything to do with the ancillary growth of the format, of course, but I think it's definitely to be expected. Let's hope, yep. And if no one else will do it, you can do it. <laughs> Absolutely. That's the main reason. I mean, I'm, I'm not thrilled about Look, 
I'm not thrilled at the idea of sitting behind a computer and playing Magic, but I think if it's, if it's a way to promote vintage and, you know, I can play it more. I don't play Cockatrice. I don't like Cockatrice. Um, but if, but I'm happy to play in a legitimate format where there are people playing on a regular basis and organized tournaments. That's what I enjoy playing is organized tournaments. Um, and if I can play organized tournaments on MTGO with vintage, I will do so. Um, but, you know, let's not be silly about it. Let's do it in the right way. I couldn't agree more. And fortunately, as I said earlier, Magic Online is successful despite the shortcomings of the software. It's wildly successful. There's no reason to believe that there isn't player support out there, an existing player base and new ones that will come in to support Vintage specifically. And there's a reciprocal, I think, potentially symbiotic relationship between the paper and, and online format, right? So you said we'll get tournament results, which will help hopefully drive the metagame. We'll create familiarity with the paper format so that people will play the paper format. Mm-hmm. Hopefully more respect for the format as people better understand it. Mm-hmm. There's a lot to be gained. I can't wait for the first time when I play in a tournament and someone is playing a deck that was copied off of Magic Online. <laughs> and it sounds foolish, and a lot of people don't like net decking, etc., but I'm just saying I can't wait till we get to that saturation point that's where point. people, oh, some, someone says, oh, you're playing the moto build of that deck. That's going to be great. That's great. I gotcha. Well, I will be, I look forward to that day as well. <laughs> you know, Steve, this is just like the schools of magic. We, we definitely want to hear what our readers, our listeners think about this concept. So our closing question for this episode, will you eventually play vintage on magic online? Yes or no? If so, why? If not, why not? And what do you expect to encounter on magic online vintage in general? With that, thank you for listening to episode 19 of so many insane plays. Our next episode, number 20, will be our vintage year in review for 2012, which we're very excited about. Until then, you can tweet us at many insane plays or email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com. And as always, we wish you many insane plays. Vintage is not safe for the game! <laughs> <laughs>